If we haven't met, and I'm just so excited to be here with you this morning, uh, you know, it's good to come to church and be encouraged. I hope that you come into these buildings on a Sunday morning and you're encouraged and, and you learn more about God's love in your life. And uh, we're just so uh, grateful that you're here again, everyone. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, we're going through the book of 1 Peter and we're, we call this Culture Wars, we call this series Culture Wars for a few different reasons, but I just, I, this is the only time I'll be teaching uh, in this series, and so I did want to mention this. You know, we, we see Culture Wars, and it, it maybe isn't as clear as to what we're saying, what we're at war against. This is the truth. We're not at war against people. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Peter was talking about when he wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. We're at war with customs, behaviors, ideas that the culture around us uh, shoves in our face that are pervasive to all of our lives. I think it's really well summed up in, in 1 Peter 2. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I just want to draw our attention to it again. Peter says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. See, this is, a, this is an internal, this is a battle, not, not merely physical. I mean, it will play itself out in a physical way, but it's, it's mainly a spiritual battle, which Paul talks about in Ephesians. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Okay, so, so if you've been sitting here and, and your takeaway is to go like you're a Christian and I'm going to go fight my neighbor who's not a Christian, right? That's, that's not what our response should be, okay? Uh, we shouldn't be mad at the world. In fact, it, it says the opposite in First Peter. It says a lot about uh, loving the world and treating the world with compassion and, and tenderness and patience, and we're going to talk about that today. But, but first and foremost, this is, a, this is a, a spiritual battle that we're fighting. And today we're going to talk about, in chapter 4, Winning the war within. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you have your Bibles, even if it's on your phone. Uh, I just encourage you to grab, grab those to proof what I'm saying. Uh, I could just be throwing stuff up here that uh, is not even in the Bible and you wouldn't know unless you had your Bible, right? And we also have uh, free Bibles out there for you to take. Uh, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 4 today, verses 1 through, through 11. And we're going to look at how to win the war within, because this is the truth, is that we all have this battle at, at, within us that we fight and that we wage against every day. I don't know about you, but like, I feel like so often I have this, like, just this unrest. Isn't that what war is? War is unrest. It, it's the opposite of, of peace, Right? So many of us are dealing with these emotions and these thoughts and these ideas, and they're waging war within us. You know, some of the, some of the things that I, I have to war against every single week, every single day sometimes, is, you know, the questions of, am I going to eat the donut, or am I going to go for the run? Right? That's a war. That's an internal war that I have to fight so often, Am I going to watch TV for one, two, four, five hours? 
Or am I going to read? And am I going to do the dishes? And am I, am I going to do these things, right? Am I going to spend time with my wife and with my kids? Or am I going to uh, just spend time on my phone and do what I want to do, right? These are the internal struggles, some of them, that I have. Maybe a little bit more seriously, though. Am I going to honor God in my choices? Or am I going to do what will make me happy in the moment? What I think I should do, right? Am I going to trust that God's plan is better than my plan? Or am I going to stress and worry and be anxious over what I think needs to happen? You know, these are, these are questions that, that we deal with on a constant basis, and this is exactly what was happening in the first century church that Peter was writing to. There was this wage, there was this war that was, was being fought, and what Peter is saying is that you have to, first you have to win this internal war, this internal battle, before you can even go out into the world, right? Because I think every Christian would agree that Christians who don't fight the battle within and just start at the external are not the best people, right? They're judgmental, they're legalistic, and so we're to be people who, who fight this war within, and it's going to be difficult, it's going to be hard, you can't do it through your own power, it has to be God's work in your life, but, but there's encouragement because we can win the war, and that's what Peter talks about in chapter 4. And he, he, We're going to look at five things just drawing out from the, the chapter 4 here this morning that we need to do to win the war, and this is the first thing is we need to chase God. We need to chase after God. He starts and he says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Okay, so we're going to unpack this. First thing, so then... So then, since, as we look back to chapter 3 and before, this letter is being written to a persecuted church, to people who are suffering for their faith. And so Peter is saying, so then, because Christ suffered for you, you need to have the same attitude that he had in your life and be willing to suffer for your faith. Now, this isn't a very fun message, but this is the truth, is that Christians, we will go through trials and difficult situations in our lives. We'll go through persecution because we love Jesus, because we have a relationship with Jesus. Now, here's what Peter is not saying, because, you know, there's so many people who, who go out into the world and, and they take their Bibles uh, or metaphorically take their Bibles and they slam people over the head and they say, you are a sinner and you're not living the way that you should be and, and you need to repent. And, and like some of what they're saying, the sad thing is some of what they're saying is kind of true, but, but really the message is delivered in a totally inappropriate and wrong way and context, Right? They're being persecuted, but they're not being persecuted for what they're teaching. They're being persecuted for being a jerk, which isn't what persecution we're talking about here. That's not what Peter was saying, because if you remember in 1 Peter 1, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter says that we're to be compassionate and loving and kind to the body of Christ, but also to the world around us. Paul, in another area, he said that, that our lives should be seasoned with salt. We should season everything that we say. 
Paul doesn't say that you should grab a handful of salt and, and like make the person open their eyes and throw it right in their eyes, right? That's not what Paul says. He says you should season everything that you say so that it can be accepted well. And, and the truth is, is that even, even if you do that, it may not be accepted well. But that's not the point. We can only control what we can control. We can't control how other people are going to respond. So we need to chase after God. We need to be humble, compassionate, sympathetic to everyone. But the culmination of these verses is that last verse. You, when you do this, when, you, when you're willing to have the same attitude and suffer with Christ, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You will be anxious to do the will of God. And you might say, well, aren't we supposed to not be anxious about anything? Right? Doesn't, isn't that what Paul said in Philippians? He said, don't be anxious about anything. So like this is a contradiction, right? Well, the important thing is that word anxious, knowing what it means. You will be anxious means it could be translated, you will be passionate to do the will of God. You will be eager. You will long to do the will of God. It's not an anxiety like uh, I'm afraid or I'm fearful. It's, it's like an excitement to do what God has called you to do. That's what Peter's saying. When, when you stop chasing your own desires, when you stop chasing what you want in your life and you chase after God, number one, you won't have time to chase after your own desires because you're gonna be chasing after the will of God. You're gonna be anxious to be obedient to him. And Peter continues and he says this in verses three and four. There we go. He says, you have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So the idea behind what he's saying is don't plunge in to these wild and destructive things that you used to do in your lives. Now this is really good news for a lot of, a lot of reasons. The first reason is that the past is in the past, right? You're not defined, when you come to a relationship with Jesus, you are not defined by your past anymore. It doesn't matter how bad or how many bad things you did or thought or said to anyone, the point of Jesus coming was to take all of that upon himself and so that you could be forgiven through his power, and so Peter is saying the past, the things you used to do in the past no longer define you. They're, they're, they're the things you used to do. Things like this is just a, a you know, it, this isn't an exhaustive list, but immorality, lust, gluttony, drunkenness, wild parties, right? The thing, college, you could probably just sum all those up in, in one word, right? College. That's what we're, you know, in a sense, kind of told to do. Go to college, make a bunch of stupid mistakes, and then, you know, you're forgiven out. No, but it's like these things are destructive in your lives, right? Like I have friends who, who never really moved on from that stage of life, some of which have died because of their choices, some of which are probably going to sadly die soon because of their choices, because these things that we do sin is destructive in our lives, and so we're called as Christians, again, to, to, to not live in this way. And again, this isn't like some legalistic, you need to have everything together. You need to be perfect, because you're not going to be perfect. 
Christ, Christ, that's why Christ died for you. So he was perfect so that you didn't have to be perfect. But what it is saying is this, this is an attitude of saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this because, because I'm a Christian and I'm forgiven by the grace of Jesus. And it's like, no, you're like totally missing the point if that's how you feel about like I can go do all these bad things because Christ forgives me. No, those things are, are, are destructive to your life and Jesus already paid the price for them. You know, and if you're a Christian and, and you're doing and living in sin, like it'll bother you, right? Like I, that's kind of what we use this word conviction and that's kind of a nice word, but like when you're sinning, when you're not like doing, when you're doing things willfully disobediently, it bothers you. And it may take you years to figure that out and to actually own up to that, but eventually it'll bother you so much you have to bring it before God. You have to talk about it with those who love you. Don't go back to the wild and destructive habits of your old life. That's what Peter's saying. Move on. You know, um, it's, it's kind of a, a tough question, but you know, like I was thinking about this. If someone saw my life and they just followed me around, like the Truman Show, if someone did that, would they like be like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good Christian guy? I, I don't know that they would. Like honestly, and I hope, like I, I'm not just saying that, like I, I don't know that they would, especially if there was a camera in my car. That would not be good. Just wouldn't be good. I need to get tinted windows so no one can see inside my car, you know, because if you cut me off, it's going to be like arms in the air and screaming and because I'm a sinner, right? Like I, I, I can tend to go back into this, this, this anger and this, you know, all of these things that are in my past, but, but I don't have to because of what Christ has done for me. The second, the third thing is this, as Peter continues, that we need to sharpen our prayers. He says in verse 7, the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Now, a lot of people have used this verse as a fear tactic, right? Like the end of the world is coming soon. It's coming on Tuesday, you know, in 2012. Remember when the world, well, first of all, in 2000, Right? The world was supposed to end then, and then it was like 2012, and then now maybe it's next year. Who knows? The, po- the point is, is that no one knows. Like, Jesus didn't even know when he was on this earth. He did not know when the last day of the world as we know it was coming. So anyone who says that they know the day, say, no, you don't. Read your Bible. You don't know. None of us know, but, but people have used this as a fear tactic. I like the translation. There's another translation that says, the end of the world is approaching. The end of the world is approaching, which is true 2,000 years ago when this was written. Just, it, it's just as true back then as it is today. The end of the world is approaching. Each and every day we live, the end of the world as we know it is getting closer. Now, I don't, say that, I don't know when that is, and I'm not going to pretend to tell you when that is. That's not my point in this. But the reason Peter, I believe, is saying this is to create a sense of intentionality for Christians and a sense of kind of urgency 
for followers of Jesus. Because, because followers of Jesus, again, Jesus gave us a great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, right? That's a very active thing. Go is a verb. It's not just you sit back and wait for everything to come together for you. We're going into the world. We're going into the world. But I love what Peter says here. Because he doesn't say that we need to get all of our friends together and plan this big event and, and do all. No, he says, the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. I love that. Because it shows us, it shows us something very important. It's that like really at the end of the day, we don't control or can't do or have the power to do anything, Right? Like, I, I know that as I've been watching the news and, and seeing everything that's going on in the world, not only this past week, but the past two years, right, or even before that, you just sit back and, and you feel helpless. You're like, I cannot do anything. And you know what? You're probably right. Like, you can't, like, go out there and, like, fight someone. You know, that's just not going to happen. But what you can do is trust God to do what only he can do. And for Christians, you know, our first response often is not to pray. Our first response is to go and to do something and to, to make sure that we're doing everything that we can and people can see, you know, we're start doing all these good things, but our first response should be to pray. And I love what this earnest and, and, uh, and disciplined prayer, this could also be translated as sane and calm the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be sane and calm in your prayers. What? The end of the world is coming and I'm supposed to be calm? I'm supposed to be sane? Why? Well, because ultimately we know who's in control. This is written to Christians 2,000 years ago. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that whatever happens this side of heaven isn't, isn't at all outside of God's perfect control. God is in control. God is on the throne, regardless of what war or what happens. And that's so hard for us sometimes to believe because we think we know what should happen. <laughs> we think we know the way. God, you got this one wrong, with all due respect. This is what needed to happen. But we see only just such a small picture of it. And that's why, that's why we sharpen our prayers. You know, like I said, you know, we can sit and worry about all these things. And, and I'm a worrier. I really am. I've learned this about myself. I'm a worrier. And so often, like, it's, it's almost like I'll have to stop and almost like laugh at myself because I'm like, I'm worried about this and this and this and this and this and this and that, right? I'm worried about all these things. And it's like that I literally can do nothing about. So I have two choices. I can continue to worry and stress and be anxious and fearful, or I can pray. See, worry is an opportunity. It's always an opportunity to pray. That's why it says in Philippians 4, 6, when you're worried, if you're worried, instead pray about everything. Thank God, and he'll give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's why we can be sane and calm, right? Like Christians should not be like chaotic and insane, <laughs> like in, in everything that's going on in the world. We, we should be sane because we know, you know what, God, 
this is within your plan. I don't understand why it's in your plan. You know, I feel afraid. I feel anxious. I feel worried. But God, I know that you're in control. So help me to believe that. Sharpen your prayers. You know, one of the things that we're going to be doing uh, March 11th, that we actually did this last month too, is a, is a night of prayer. And this is just an opportunity to come into this room and uninterrupted pray. Just pray. It's an opportunity. You know, one of the hardest things about prayer is that we're so distracted by everything else that's going on in our lives that like we don't actually create a space to do that. Well, that's what this is. And it's not going to be like, I'm not going to come up with you, to you with a microphone and be like, so share your deepest, darkest secrets with me so we can pray about it. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and pray. Some of you were with us last month. It's by yourself or with your family and just pray. And if you're like me, like I need this because sometimes I just, I, I know I need to pray, but I don't do it because I let all the other things in my life push it on the back burner. But we're going to be a church we're going to be a campus that believes in the power of prayer. And so we're going to do this on, on March 11th. So I encourage you. And then also tomorrow, as Tracy mentioned, we're going to be praying for the situation in our world at 12 at noon. So set a reminder in your phone tomorrow to pray for our world and what's going on and everything in it. The fourth thing that we see is in verses 8 and 9. Most important of all, Continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. The idea behind this is to show love in practical ways. Show love. You know, this, this shows us something very important about when we go through trials and difficulties is that we need community around us. We need connection around us because so often we just isolate ourselves. Like that could be individually or families. You're going through a tough time and you just isolate yourself. But really, when we're going through tough times, we should love people, show love to people in practical ways and allow them to love us in practical ways as well. And Peter says, I love this, most important of all, like, anytime that's said, we should pay attention to the next thing that's being said. Now, what does it mean to, that love covers a multitude of sins? Well, it means that when we love each other, I love this idea of pardoning a person, right? Like, like when you're pardoned, you're forgiven. Like, whatever you did it is not held against you anymore. And Christ did this, the best perfect example of what Christ did on the cross. He pardoned us of our sins, and we, in the same way, can do that with other people around us, right? Like, we're not, no one's, per, raise your hand if you're perfect. Okay, good. It was a test. And you passed. But all of us sin. All of us, you know, do things that, like, if you get to know a person long enough, they're going to do something to, like, make you mad. Or they're going to sin against you. And so, so this idea of, of love covering a multitude of sins. It's like love is greater than all the brokenness, right? Our love rises above all of the sin and everything, that, the way that people hurt us. And in this world, like we talked about unity in the previous weeks, like we should be united through love because love trumps what that person over there did to me. 
or how they hurt me and they don't even know about it, right, anymore. Love covers a multitude of sins. And I love this in in verse 9. It says, cheerfully share your homes to those in need. Cheerfully share your home or a meal or a place to stay with those in need. And another translation, it says, do this without grumbling. Do this without complaining, right? And you might be sitting here being like, okay, look, I'll love people, but there, there isn't any way that they're coming in my house, right? That's my house. No one's gonna, it's messy. You know, I, I don't wanna clean. But I think there's power, right? This is a lost art of inviting people into your home. This is why I love small groups because it's people opening up their homes for the most part. We meet here, but, um, but people opening up their homes, inviting people in, coming to connect with each other. That's, that's a great sign of love. And you know, like, uh, there's no, there's, we're so connected today. We're so connected, but we're so disconnected, right? Because with social media, you can see what's going on what's going on in the lives of so many people around you. But that's just their highlights, right? That, that, that's not the reality of their lives. But coming into someone's world physically, it brings a whole other element to it. You know, like when we went uh, into the pandemic two years ago, everyone started using Zoom and, and Google hangouts and it was like you know we were all seeing the bright side like oh, it's good that we can still connect let's be honest like google and zoom suck okay like that that's like that's like not not a, a that's no substitute for actually being with people in our lives i mean it's good that we i agree it's good that we have that right but like it's way better to sit with someone face to face and talk with them and see them because when you're, when you're behind a computer screen, you're distracted, you know, all these things are, you're doing your taxes or whatever you're doing, probably not your taxes, social media or something. Show love in practical ways, and that means helping those in need. So like that's within the body of Christ, even also outside people who aren't Christians, blessing them with a meal, blessing them with a place to stay. I love hearing stories of people opening up their home, because that's like, that's that's being literally the hands and feet of Jesus when you do that, help people in need. Show love in practical ways. And then the last thing is this. Use your spiritual gifts. First Peter 4, 10, and 11 says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. I love these verses right here. You know, in tough times, again, it's easy to become self-centered and look at, you know, woe is me. All these bad things are happening to me. Everything like that. But what Peter is saying is that, that when these things happen, it's an opportunity to use the gifts that God has given you as a Christian. This is the truth. You are, if you are a Christian, if you put your trust and faith in Jesus, you have a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are not selective in the sense that some Christians get them and some Christians don't. Every single believer in Jesus has a spiritual gift. And you're called to use that spiritual gift for the edification of the church and also 
you're blessed through it, right? Like people who serve, people who are involved, who look outside of themselves and help others, right? They are some of the most joy-filled people in the world. Now, is it inconvenient? Yes, sometimes, right? Sometimes, like the worship team got here at what, 7.30, 7.45, whatever, right? Do you think that they would have liked to sleep in this morning? Probably, right? Like if we're being honest, but they, they showed up to serve and to build the church, right? The, the coffee people, the, the sound and media, the kids' church, right? Like all of these people sacrifice for the greater good. And through it, again, it's not, only, it's not always convenient or easy, but God really does build the church. And the beautiful picture of, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians of the body, like every person is a part of the body and they have a certain function. And it's like when you have an, a, a part of the body that's not functioning correctly, it throws everything off, right? It throws everything off. Like if you have a toothache, like that ruins your entire world, even though everything else is functioning just fine, the toothache, it brings you down, right? And so it's the same picture like when Christians are using their spiritual gifts and serving one another, the church thrives. When they don't, well, the church doesn't thrive. You know, and it's easy to come in and, uh, and, and see everything and see the worship team and see the greeters and see the coffee and see the kids' church and think, oh, well, they got it covered, Right? They got it covered. They're good. They don't, they don't need me. And, and in a sense, like, honestly, like, yeah, we, we don't need it. God doesn't need anyone. God could just do it. But God chooses to use us. God chooses to give us these spiritual gifts when we become a Christian to use to serve one another. You know, in a, in a really practical example of the, of the church just kind of hurting, I mean, this is really sad, but last week we had to shut two of our kids' church classrooms in this service, because there weren't enough people to help and serve. Again, I hope if you're a Christian, I hope that bothers you, right? And I hope that, like, I pray that God would reveal to you and give you the courage and help you to step outside of yourself to serve and to be involved. Because when you do that, the church thrives. Everyone around you thrives. And I don't say this to like shame or guilt or anything like that. I, I just say it because like that's what, that's what Peter's saying here. God has given each of you, not some of you. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. And so as Christians, we're called to use those for God's glory, for the good of the church, and for, even for our good, right? Because when you serve, it's a blessing, it's a blessing to, to get outside of yourself and to see the difference you're making. So as we end, I just want to end with, uh, you know, looking at all five of these again, but also just looking at, at 419, because again, the context of this suffering, this suffering church, Nero is killing these Christians. And Peter says, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. What does it mean to suffer in a manner that pleases God? Well, it's what we just looked at today, right? It's, it's chasing after God. It's, it's putting the past in the past and living holy lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's sharpening our prayers. It's showing love in practical ways. And it's using the gifts that God has given us to build the church.
Trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. Everything else in this world, myself included, everyone will fail you at some point. At some level, they'll fail you, but God will never fail you.